Today's podcast is brought to you by our longtime sponsor, simplyfaster.com. There's two items I'd like to talk to you about today that you can find in Simply Faster's online store. Whether you're a coach or an athlete, these are both things that you'll find highly useful as tools in your training toolbox. The first is blood flow restriction training methods. And after hearing about blood flow restriction training for years now, as well as the results that athletes are getting with it, especially in, for example, lactate sports like swimming, 100 meter freestyle, and not only hearing of that, but also seeing how much some swimmers had liked that type of training method, I knew I had to start trying it out myself. So I've been utilizing the air bands. I really enjoy it, both the feeling of training of while I'm actually training with them, as well as seeing the visual result of spending time training with the methods and then the strength result. Uh, they've been a really cool training tool, and I would definitely recommend checking into air bands. Uh, SimplyFaster.com also has the strong brand blood flow restriction. The second item is the VMAX Pro. And this is a new option for velocity-based training, barbell tracking. It provides valuable load-based data, including speed in all phases of a lift, and it delivers key metrics such as power, velocity, distance, as well as duration of effort. The VMAX Pro system measures any lift you can think of. It's portable, durable, and intuitive. You can check out these two items and much more at our sponsor, simplyfaster.com's online store. Let's get on to the show. Welcome to a question and answer edition of the podcast. On today's show, I'll be taking questions that people put forth on the wonderful social media channels of Instagram stories and Twitter and giving you my best answers. A lot of the questions for today's show are really centered around sprint training and acceleration, a lot of biomechanical questions, a lot of questions on athlete elasticity and the weight room and isometrics. This is going to be a lot of fun. Let's get on to the first question. Our first question is from Pratush, and he asks, well, he has two questions. The first one is, what is your take on heel strike? I see a few people running fast relative to others who I train who do heel strike. Is there a bandwidth? If yes, when would you want to drive them more towards a midfoot strike? I'm assuming if a bandwidth being heel striking is a bad thing, when would I want to drive someone towards a midfoot strike? And interesting that the faster runners here are those who heel strike. So uh, my opinion on heel striking with sprinting, it's not a good thing. Team sports, sprinting, trying to run as fast as possible, as explosively as possible. The heel strike will be a breaking mechanism. The place that I do believe that heel striking is fine is in distance runners. If you look at like marathon runners, for example, running on the road in not sprint spikes, or I guess you could just say flats or shoes that are more geared towards running on the road, uh, you will see occasionally athletes who are rolling through this heel strike plant and it's not causing them excess brace, breaking forces and they're not slowing down or getting injured because of that. But I don't think that many people listening to this are marathon runners or many people coach marathon runners. So we'll just really cater this towards team sport athletes and track athletes who want to be as fast and explosive as possible. And in that case, I would definitely try to get athletes who are heel striking out of that. One thing right off the bat that I see with pretty much every heel striker that I've ever worked with, I only say pretty much because maybe my memory has abandoned me on that one athlete. But I would say that every athlete that I've worked with who is a heel striker, if I put them on a set of PVC pipes, like a four-inch diameter set of PVC pipes where they have to have a level of foot proprioception and sensation, I view it more as that than a just saying it's a balance exercise. They're horrible at it. They fall right off. They have very, very little ability to perform well on that. And that's usually paired with just having poor uh, foot strength as well. And now you could say, is that chicken or the egg? Do they heel strike because their feet are weak or are their feet are weak because they heel strike? 
I would say it's probably a little bit more the latter people who strike with their heel who don't who are not required to have any level of pretension in the foot will find that their foot will just naturally become weaker and less sensitive or sensory oriented over time. I will say it's it's the more the proper reception and the sensation that's the the worrisome element for me with anyone who is heel striking and even if you were somehow fast like even if somehow I don't think this ever could happen but if the heel striking made you like the fastest you could be through some very strange mechanism it probably wouldn't be very healthy for you it's not a very robust way to run it's a very it's like you're running with that that heel that almost peg leg first and then it's going to be passive forces after that it's just not a good situation so and I don't think that anyone I don't think it's possible for someone to be as fast as they could be heel striking anyways so with the bandwidth or I'll just I'll just uh, maybe get to this. How would I help someone or drive someone who is a heel striker more towards a more midfoot strike or something that's more natural where they actually can use like that power of the supination and the foot coming down and that loading of the foot into the pronation and moving into midfoot and then or the ball of the foot and then resupinating on the way out. It's just you're running on springs when you're running not on your heel, not heel striking. So some things that I will start with, the maybe I'll start with the really simple stuff, the stuff that you could call a shotgun approach, or it's just like a paint roller. It's There's not a lot of nuance required, it, it just general tools is one, getting athletes more acquainted with sense, the sensory map of their foot. Think about when we were kids, hopefully all of us remember when we were kids and we'd run around hopefully barefoot. And I remember running around my neighborhood all the time. For some reason, I have this uh, very like vivid memory of my neighbors had a pool and when I was probably like 11 or 12, we'd, I'd get in the pool, we'd get out of the pool and I'd walk barefoot on the hot asphalt and all the little rocks. And I just remember being without my shoes constantly. And it's not just being without your shoes, it's all the little sensations that you're picking up being without your shoes. And not only sensations, but also angle changes. And that's where I think like walking on uh, boulders or rocks, big rocks, for example, barefoot, where your foot is forced to one angle or the other. And we have a little bit more of a, or you'll see this in training too, with slant boards and, and domed surfaces. And the rock really in nature, if you find a good one, is almost the ultimate form of, you could, like if you've seen like the Polish jump boxes, and you have like these circles and domes and athletes hop side to side over these things, which is awesome, by the way. But if you find a good rock out in nature, you can do the same thing and get even more out of it, especially if you're barefoot, because not only do you have these almost kind of random slants, but you also have all this sensation that accompanies it. And so that stuff is really important for helping athletes to just build this sensory map and then the accompanying strength that can give them more of a robustness in the foot. When it comes to not heel striking, it's not just a sagittal plane thing. It's not just a back of the foot to front of the foot thing. So like, oh, I hope the front of my foot hits before the back. It's a side to side thing. It's a frontal plane thing. So we're looking at the strike is originating on the middle outside edge of the foot somewhere in there. It depends on where exactly you're striking. Some people might be closer to the heel, some further. And then the force will roll inwards, roll medially towards that big toe side of the foot. and this doesn't, this optimal solution isn't just found in sagittal plane stuff. It is found, in my opinion, with things that incorporate rolling side to side, the frontal plane, and lots of sensation. Other things that I like is isometric lunge holds with that front heel just like maybe a quarter inch off the ground and just building that strength of co-contraction there to have the foot in some a semi-rigid lever position 
even though an iso lunge is definitely not the angle the leg's going to be in, when an athlete is striking the ground, I think it just gets them the idea across. I've heard of heel striking as well. Adarian Bard mentioned this at one of the rewire clinics that we did back a few years ago, maybe two or three years ago. And it was the idea that when athletes heel strike, let's think of it this way. When the foot's in front of you when you're sprinting, the rest of the body kind of has to catch up to that foot as the foot is coming down towards the ground. And then the rest of me is catching up, repositioning myself in space. Think pelvis, ribs, and arms as I'm moving up over that foot. And so people who are just bad at repositioning themselves in space, and this is where some coordination and segmentation and some sensa- uh, sensing of the body and the air is important. I like the idea that an athlete should be able to do a good Russian lunge switch. So think of it like you're in an isometric lunge hold and then you just jump and switch the legs quickly in the air and do that with an imaginary ceiling like a foot over your head. So it's about the speed of the switch in the air. You have to use your arms and coordinate your arms. And you'd be surprised if you haven't done that type of thing before, you'd be surprised at how many athletes are actually incredibly poor at it. And I would prefer this. And I think it was Rob Assis, who has been on this podcast a few times, who mentioned that, and and I would definitely prefer this to the regular, like straight up tall running switching drills for a, a variety of reasons. I think Rob had mentioned that as well. I don't want to put words in his mouth, but when he said that, I was like, yeah, I, I think I would prefer that as well, certainly. Like, so the ability to switch in the air with a whole body effort, I think that that ISO, um, that lunge, that low lunge switch is more representative of what's happening in running and sprinting than something in a taller position. So just my thought and two cents with that one. Helen Hall, who's been on this show, has an awesome way of using sensory, a sensory-based system and downhills and hills to help athletes feel uh, how to get out of heel striking. And again, I always love anecdotes that are found in nature. So if you could find everything you need for training in nature, to me, that's just so awesome. The idea that you don't need the beautiful gym, the almost you call it the recruiting race gym, like look how many things this space has in it versus I, I just love the idea that I could go or take an athlete out into who uh, an area that has some rocks, some hills, some things that we can use and utilize. It's like it's like Rocky. I'm always trying to bring it back to Rocky or Rocky Four. But Helen, in her book, even with your shoes on, talked about using downhills as a sensory tool or downhill trotting as a sensory tool to help athletes learn to manage that sweet spot of their foot where they are going to strike the ground. And she'll have athletes uh, in her book talks about having athletes hop up and down in place on the spot on flat ground, I believe. And just feel where the natural contact point is. I don't think there's a person out there who's going to hop up and down and feel the heel as the main contact point. In fact, that'd be very impressive if you could manage to hop up and down and you're only using your heel there. So from that point, once a a sweet spot has been established, you'll have athletes, they can do a gentle trot downhill. And if you've ever walked or hiked downhill, which I'm sure we all have, you notice the next time you do it, your foot wants to point down and supinate and kind of hit this outside front edge to feel where the ground is and get yourself ready to have the ground absorb your downward force with gravity and go on to the next step. So she'll utilize that, that hopping, and then the downhill trotting as a sensory tool. And then finally, I do think there's value and interest in manipulating pelvic position. So Helen in her book also will use like cogs or Gary Ward's cogs, think of where an athlete is against the wall perhaps and moving into like moving their spine or their pelvis anterior to posterior. Think of it like a cat cow, although in the actual cog, the head is doing the opposite 
but they're basically feeling their spine against the wall, feeling it moving in space, and then noticing that and noticing it in the run. Sometimes heel striking too can happen when an athlete is just like stuck or crammed in a particular like a forward pelvic position and they're not really reciprocating there. So just helping athletes uh, move their spine can be a really helpful practice. I probably answered more than you might have wanted there with the heel strike thing, but I just think it's a good question. I, I don't think I've really talked about it at length in these Q&As and sometimes I've done so many questions over time, I, I feel like I've probably repeated some of these, but it's something that I was excited to chat a little bit about because if you are out there and you work with athletes, I guarantee you've worked with heel strikers. So it was fun for me to list some things out and say, hey, these are good elements to try and think about when we're talking about getting athletes more power, more ability off the ball of the foot and everything that comes with that. Pratush's second question, also great. How would you get someone to delay knee extension in regards to both acceleration and top end speed sprinting? So there's uh, a few things I, I like. I always like these questions because I think about the guests on the podcast and the mentors I've had. And I think about some of the things that they've given me that I will put together. So I would say the first big figure for me in terms of really thinking about delayed knee extension was a Darian Barr. Before I get to some of the drills and the ideas that I've taken from him that I tend to utilize with helping people to not overextend or extend their knees too quickly, I like to go to more of the base, like base human functioning. And for that one, I like Dave O'Sullivan, who was on the show. He had an exercise. He just called it a slouch. I think I call it a J curl for some reason. I don't think anyone else refers to it as that. But if you go to the O'Sullivan episode, and I'll try to remember to put it in the show notes of this one. There's a video there. But it's a movement where you'll be taking a split stance, so like a half lunge, I think. And then the front leg, I'm going to take the knee over the toe. So instead of the shin perpendicular to the ground, I'm in this split half lunge and I'm taking the front knee well over the toe. And from there, I'm going to kind of do like a Jefferson curl almost with my upper body. I'm just going to slouch forward over that knee. And then I'm going to retract myself back up without straightening the knee. And hopefully I explained that pretty well. But really, in reality... I find that athletes who have a tendency to straighten the knee out early in sprinting, in acceleration in sprinting, they're going to, if you put them in that slouch move position, they will invariably straighten the knee on the way back up early. So they're going to, you get them in that half lunge position, their knees kind of forward, they go down, and then they're getting ready to go back up. And they're either like gripping their toes like crazy at this point already, uh, which is kind of a thing that happens for people who tend to rely on quads. But as soon as they start to reverse the movement out of the slouch at the bottom, they will uh, straighten their leg early. And so if you put them in a three-point or a two-point start, three-point start, you very often will see the same thing happening. It's just like a, it's a, it's a movement that's kind of wired in the system. So I am a big fan of slowing things down before we take them fast. And I like um, Edward Yu was on the show, I think episode 209. His book is Slowing Down to Run Faster. He's a Feldenkrais practitioner and does a lot of work on the ground, uh, crawling even. That's uh, crawling and groundwork is the slowest you can get. But I think it's hard to do that work. You can do some crawling work with delayed knee extension, actually. And in fact, it's hard to crawl in a way where you don't delay your knee extension, especially if your hips are low to the ground. So that's there's another thing. Maybe you could utilize that too. But that just creates a good like uh, starting place for athletes with that. And ideally, too, they're feeling that movement in their, their low medial quads. So the VMO, they're feeling it there. They're feeling their glutes really on fire from that, hopefully. 
they're feeling the arch of their foot. And I know David and uh, had talked about this, and you can also use that cue of squishing an orange with the arch of the foot while you're coming up out of the movement. So I think that uh, that stuff is awesome when it does come to that teaching from a base or rudimentary level that delayed hip or delayed knee extension, not doing that too early. I will say though, with the slouches, uh, you are in a like a class one position of the ankle, meaning the heel is still on the ground when you do that. And so the the goal then is once you can do that, we would want to do it with the heels off the ground because when we're accelerating, we want the heels off the ground. So from this point, and this is where just a lot of basic stuff comes in. So just doing working with sleds. So a sled is a slower movement in running. It's basically rehearsing the first few steps over and over again. Uh, we'll talk about this. I don't, I don't want to go too far into this. Actually, there's another question on acceleration and and sleds and squatted running. So I'll I'll save a little bit of this for for that. But just know like sleds and and low type runs, squatty running, running uh, a Darian Barge bucket runs where you put a bucket or a box over your butt in a squatted position and just run with short choppy steps for a few steps and then you can like throw the bucket off and keep running. That will force you. The bucket run will force you to not <laughs> extend your knees. So you can really create the sensation of what does it feel like to run in a squatted position where I'm not ex- prioritizing knee extension over hip extension. Granted, the bucket run, you're never going to be fast doing just that. You do need to kick in that knee extension at some point. But that run is a different world for people who really don't know how to use their glutes well. The other thing that I'll talk about with delaying knee extension is, again, this is stuff that Adarian Barr had taught me, is just sensation, just getting in your body when you're accelerating. And so oftentimes, I'm sure I'll get into this later in the show, but we tend to, I think a lot of coaching happens on the level of positions. So, you know, get to this angle, get down in this angle, drive your knee, drive your arm to this position. But that's just the outer game. And in any movement or series of movements, there's the outer game and then there's the inner game. And the inner game is more the, whereas there's the timing, the feeling. I'm feeling what's going on and I'm working with those feelings. I'm reacting. Or I'm reacting to my environment, I'm reacting to the ground, I'm reacting to gravity on my body. So to avoid overextending the knee, to me, I think that you can direct an athlete's sensation to different areas. You can direct it to feeling how much shin drop is happening. How much is your shin dropping? When does the shin stop? You can direct it to an awareness of the feet. You could feel, have an athlete feel when the feet are loading. And then you could have an athlete feel when the foot is hitting that pronation and when there's that subtle stretch in the foot and then reacting off that. Feeling how they are, how squatted are you when you're running? To me, a lot of it is having athletes just get in their bodies and know and feel what's going on. Uh, and then to me as well, the, the big feeling, a big feeling-based exercise is a squatted run. So that gives you a sensory baseline of what it's like, what it feels like to be squatted. And then you can really just start to extrapolate that out into runs that have less squat to them, more total velocity. So there's a continuum there that I think can be helpful, starting with that low level or that slow level movement of a slouch with the knee continually bent, and then working into feeling-based movements, squatty running, sled runs, things where athletes are aware of what, when their joints are loading and when they're unloading. All right, next question was Saisan. He says, do you think that flat feet might be an advantage since you enter mid-stance more quickly? So would I think that flat feet are an advantage 
because they help uh, an athlete get to mid stance more quick or quickly. <laughs> and I would say, yes, uh, absolutely. Um, that was uh, the thing that I had uh, learned from a Darian bar was the idea that the, that flat foot, I would say an athletic flat foot, not like a totally collapsed arch or, any, or anything like that, but it basically helps an athlete to get to that position of maximal stiffness against the ground just a little bit quicker. So they're, they're basically already at that position right when they hit the ground versus an athlete with a higher arch. And one thing that I noticed that I think might like really, really highlight this is when you watch an athlete uh, jumping. So be it a high jump in track and field or an athlete who's dunking, I've noticed that flat-footed athletes seem to be the ones who have the easiest time completely deforming their shoes or destroying their shoes. Getting to this, when they, when they jump to take off, it's as if their whole shoe is, it, there's so much pressure going into the shoe that it's almost like wrapping around their foot and the sole of the shoe is facing almost sideways. And I don't really see that happen as often or really at all with athletes with a higher arch. That's something I tend to see with athletes who tend to have flatter feet. So I think that that's something that just comes with the territory there. But when athletes have flatter feet, also there's, I think there's the level where it can be a liability. It's more of a razor's edge. There might be some performance gains and immediate stiffness, but there also could be a higher, uh, more of a thin wire to uh, walk across when it comes to injury and and um, maybe not having as much of a shock absorber, if you will. But I also never want to make it out to be like a liability if you don't have flat feet. I think athletes will figure out how to to do whatever skill they are are performing. But I do think it's interesting the nuance of that very rapid stiffness that a flat foot can offer. So I, it's interesting. Um, for the longest time, I thought that flat feet were really bad when it comes to athleticism. And then my world got flipped a little bit. It's like, oh, wait, no, they're, they're a good thing when it comes to athleticism. Just again, as long as you can activate or form up the arches of the foot, feel the tripod, that the foot isn't collapsing or overpronating, you're going to be doing pretty well. So again, we can't change our feet in terms of what we have for the arches, but that's something that I think is just an important piece of knowledge for coaches to have. Next question is BUIs. This question says, top two to three faults you commonly coach as it pertains to a start out of blocks, uh, acceleration in those first two to three steps, and then common drills you utilize for correcting those set issues. So I think the big thing is, yeah, let's just talk about out of the blocks, yeah, the first couple steps. And I've talked about this a lot. It's one of the front and center items in Speed Strength, my book. But a big fault is trying to go too long on the first step, trying to really stretch and hit that position. So that like post position, the back arm is thrown straight back and the athlete is straight, perfectly straight and long from head to toe as they exit the block. And this is one of those things where, again, it's the, the inner game versus the outer game. That's a pure outer game thing. It's, it's just trying to look pretty. And I think the biggest thing to look at is athletes, you, you'll see elite athletes doing that in practice occasionally, but then go look what they do when they're competing. Go look what they do when that gun fires on the starting line. Go look what they do when they're running the 40-yard dash. And look how long that first step was in competition versus how long it was in practice. And almost invariably, you're going to see a much shorter step in competition. And that's the beauty of the athlete's brain is when you're in competition, hopefully you're going to do the thing that is going to allow you to run as fast as you possibly can. And so, yeah, trying to go too long in the first step is a big one. That kind of fits with the early knee extension too, uh, because trying to go just really stretch that first step out will force you to not delay knee extension. It, since it's a jump, you're, you're basically knee extending early to go as far as you can. So as opposed to that, 
the cure then is learning ideas of shin drop. We'll say to I'll, I'll try to cover I'll try to cover all the errors before I get into the drills or the things to work on. Another element that I see in the first few steps of acceleration is definitely being impatient. And this is where I think patience is seen in the first few steps of a sprint is in shin drop. And so that's where it's just a very, it's a very subtle thing because we're talking hundredths of a second here of patience. It's not like, it's not this lopingness. It's just enough patience to let the shin drop appropriately in the first few steps and then be moving forward. So athletes who, I will say you, I mean, there's athletes who do start spinning their wheels a little bit earlier and having success with it on the track and field level. But I do believe that athletes should, especially team sport, if we're thinking of a team sport athlete, I think it's a really good thing to be able to let the foot pronate and let that shin drop. And those two things are, that is important to let the shin drop. You need some pronation and internal rotation for that to happen. If I am very like sagittal plane oriented and rigid, I have almost no choice but to not let the shin drop. So there is an element of that with the patients. And then athletes are all going to be wired towards different levels of pronation and supination naturally. How much, how much do they squeeze out of it in their acceleration? Hence, not all athletes will have the same amount of shin drop, but they still need to learn what it feels like for the shin to drop and to have that as their, their patience. Another error that I see is just being totally front-sided. So by that, I mean that everything an athlete is conscious of, everything they're aware of in the sprint is on the front side of their body. And I, this is an error. So it's like the arms driving into the front up towards the head it would be a front-sided kind of map, motor map. I'm probably making the word more complicated than I need to, but hopefully you get what I'm saying. Like their awareness is of things happening in the front side, maybe the knee driving in front. And you'll see when athletes are, have this front-sidedness to them, I always see a lot more effort too that accompanies it. Consider it more the muscular and effort uh, laden end of the barometer. Versus athletes who can use more elasticity, I feel like have more of an ownership of the motor map of the backside of their body. Watch Usain Bolt uh, accelerating and, it, and just doing practice accelerations back in when he was uh, in world, rec world record speed. And you see so much backside emphasis. You see the feet kicking up a little bit back behind the body, the elbows and arms emphasizing back behind the body. You see this, uh, he's tuning, it's like he's tuning the timing of the backside of the body. And to me, that is elastic. That's the thing that it's almost, it, there is almost two different paths in this sense. I, I feel like athletes who it's very, they're very coached up. They're in the weight room all the time. And the weight room is good for sprinters. But I mean, but, but where it becomes like part of their identity, like, and the, the lift numbers are part of the, an important critical part of the process to drive uh, sprint speed is you tend to see this like front side laden, <laughs> sagittal plane oriented, muscle driven movement. Whereas athletes who are a little more elastic or a lot more elastic, they're going to be a little bit more backside driven. They're using more of the frontal plane side to side. They're using more rotational planes. They're really squeaking out those spirals and using elastic elements of the body. So just being able to get athletes attuned to that part of the motor map is important. And then I would say that the other error is just no awareness of the feet. So athletes who just straight up mush the feet through the acceleration. So what are some uh, drills, elements, things to look for to help these parts of running? Well, one is, I said it before, but squatted runs and sleds. This is just a great place to give athletes awareness of the things that they need to do. So 
be it shin drop, be it just noticing when the knee extends, noticing the extension of the hip, noticing if the foot or the feet are mushing or not. Sleds are a great way to slow things down and help athletes to have increased awareness of this. Squatted runs are also awesome because I think that they really prioritize shin drop. So if you're going to be running squatted, accelerating in a squatted position where you're kind of disallowing hip extension, you have to really have some shin drop going on unless you're doing this weird stab the ground type type motion. So sleds and squatted runs are very helpful here. Backside mechanical work. So just watch Usain Bolt accelerate. Having athletes just practice accelerations with perhaps only backside type mechanics. So you, maybe you'll notice the trend in how I tend to approach this stuff. I like if someone overuses the front side, tell them they can do a few only using the backside and then have them go back and sprint normally again. Notice how it changed. Notice what was different. I also like using sleds and contrasting sleds with regular sprints. Sometimes even with uh, long jumpers I work with, I'll contrast like sleds and long jumps, things like that. I really enjoy it. So just noticing how that feels and then changing over to the free, the untethered version of it. Uh, the backside mechanics takes a lot of time, I find, is people who don't normally use that part of their system. They usually don't really pay attention to the space behind themselves. It's a paradigm shift for them to really work back there and work back behind the body. And it actually, I mentioned like the, the side-to-side and rotational nature of people who can use the backside. If people don't have a lot of rotation, if they're really stuck like in the ribs and they don't use a lot of frontal plane, they're going to have a harder time really getting the backside to work well for them. They will probably need a little bit more practice. They might need to accompany it with just some spinal, just some mobilizing, just some working maybe some functional lateral squats and really trying to wind up pronation or just doing some spinal work to kind of awaken the joint structures there. So that could be helpful. And then finally with the foot stuff, I think that Helping athletes not to mush the first few steps is, in theory, it's, it's easy in the sense it's like, well, just build more ankle stiffness and then sprint. But there's a, a big sensory component to that. Um, athletes need to learn to form the arches and form those and feel the pressures on their foot from the initial stance. And that's something that Adarian Barr has told to me is, athletes, if you don't have the formation of the arch in step one or from the very start of the stance, you're not going to magically get it together in step one or step two. It's not like you're going to have arches that are very flat to the ground and they're not really active. And then all of a sudden you take a step and now they activate and suddenly your, your foot's going to be like really resilient. And that's where, again, I think that a philosophy of sprinting or early few steps where it's like, well, it's just all about the muscle generating stiffness. Let's just train the muscle and, and that muscle tendon unit. And then that's going to build the stiffness. But we, enjoy, uh, we ignore joints and we uh, ignore the arches of the foot and we ignore the sensory elements of the foot. That's going to be not maximally helpful for athletes. I, I believe we need to help them feel the feet. And so for that, working different hand positions can be helpful and working the starts barefoot can be helpful. I find that when athletes just, well, one, they just switch from trainers to sprint spikes. They tend to have better foot action in the start. And then when they're barefoot, the foot, they're not going to be as fast because of the friction and the skin against the ground, but the foot action gets even better. There's more sensation. If it's on a track, they feel it. But you can have athletes do things like holding pinky toe, uh, pinky finger up, and that position can help lift the pinky toe a little bit and get a little bit more arch activation. John Garish, when he was on the show, was talking about different hand positions uh, during wicket runs like Spock hand and TCU hand and all that stuff really can change 
or impact or control the foot and cause some different and interesting changes in sprint shape. So that was something that he was talking about. So those are some things that I would utilize or consider when we're talking about um, the acceleration process. I'm sure there's stuff that we could talk about with posture as well, but in terms of just the timing-based issues and the sensation-based issues, those are some big things that I'm going to see in early acceleration and how I go about working those. Uh, Finally, too, I'll say with the foots and the pressure too, like just helping an athlete learn to feel the pressure of the balls of the foot or the transverse arch into the ground. That's actually what I personally enjoy when I'm doing sprints is feeling those arch pressures or just noticing them. I just, Helen Hall calls it the gift of notice, just noticing them in the first five or 10 yards and then switching emphasis to something else once I'm past that. Position tends to work well for me with that. I wanted to take a break from the show and briefly share with you the difference that performance herbalism can make for you. Several years ago, I had Logan Christopher, CEO of Lost Empire Herbs, on the show to talk about hypnosis and mental training for athletes. While talking to him, I realized he also had an herbalism company. So shortly thereafter, I used the Phoenix Formula, which was my first product I bought from them. I had great results with it, not only increasing my energy and decreasing my need for coffee and caffeine, but I also noticed that it was making an impact on my lifts and my weight room numbers. I was having a great training experience. Shortly thereafter, I also got into the Shiliagit resin as well as other herbs. And I don't look at supplementation the same way. I'm a strong believer in what Logan and his company are doing in looking for a natural resource to boost human performance. If you want to check out the herbs that I use personally from Lost Empire Herbs, you can head to www.lostempireherbs.com slash justfly. There you can get 15% off your order and they offer a 365-day money-back guarantee. Definitely check them out. Let's get on back to the show. Next question, we're still on the sprint train. This is a very sprint-heavy episode, but I like it. Hannes says, how to periodize max velocity work? I'm assuming max velocity sprint work. Once intensity is at the max and assisted or overspeed is touched upon sporadically, where do we go from there? Go from fly 30s to flying 35s to 40s? Question mark. We could increase volume of jumps uh, without increasing sprint volume. Go from 5 by 40 meters to 6 to 7 by 40 meters. I'm very creative and very a lot, but this seems something that stays without consensus. Okay, so when you ask me these questions, my mind is very, um, I don't know if you'd say divergent in terms of thinking. So I'm probably going to give you something that might be a little bit different in some senses of the word. But I don't really think of this question in terms of um, linear volumes. So if I'm talking about how do I go throughout a training year and I'm periodizing max velocity, Uh, Where am I taking it? Well, maybe I'll, and I don't just want to make this a track and field question. I know there's a lot of team sport conditioning coaches out there who utilize like flying tens and things like that. And I think that's a good thing. I think that's awesome. And we've had like Joel Reinhardt and Andrew Cormier talking about a feed the cats based soccer training system or field hockey. Really cool stuff. So whether you're a track or team sports uh, strength and conditioning coach, I think it's all, this is something that all could be valuable for you. So to me, once you get past, just in terms of volume and, and where to go, I think once you get past a flying 10 or a flying 20, it's all kind of the same thing. Like, <laughs> I don't think there's a whole lot of a point really to say, okay, let's do a flying 30, a flying 40. As I see it, that's a very, I don't know, it's like a very like um, mathematical way of doing it, but I don't think it really ignites like the motor learning system in the brain. It's just, it's just let's just go a little further. Whereas I like to seek the qualitative changes to what's actually happening in that 10 meter segment. 
And so that's, that's how I will tend to mix things up more. That's how I would go about it. And in terms of, let's see, overspeed as well, maybe I'll, I'll try to bring that in there also. And, and we're talking about periodization. So the first thing is the easiest way to intensify maximal velocity is downhill. It is overspeed. I am a big believer in downhill or overspeed work. But the question with that is always, well, one, if you're in a track and field paradigm or in a year-to-year paradigm with a team sport, perhaps it's, well, where do you go from here? So if I use uh, overspeed early in the training year or early in an athlete's career, where am I going to go next? There's not a whole lot of places because that sprinting is already, max speed sprinting is already like the highest speed, the most coordinative, the highest demand thing a human being can basically do in terms of just this razor's edge of muscles that are could explode if the body makes one wrong move. It's so explosive and coordinated. And now we're going to take that, we're going to crank it up a little bit by going downhill. So this is a very intense stimuli. For me, and I, I do believe in that type of work, I just think that it should be done in uh, lower doses earlier in an athlete's career and then in the scope of later years of performance, saving it till later in the year because you once you use it, you don't really have as many places to go. But I like some other types of, or here's some other types of max velocity work that you can do rather than just max velocity or increasing the distance or volume or going downhill. One is uh, utilizing low, uh, so no higher than four inches high mini hurdles. Uh, If the mini hurdles are higher than four inches, uh, the athlete starts to get into more of a step over the knee type situation and that breaks the athlete, or not, doesn't literally break them, but it's a breaking force. It's a breaking force to to step over the knee because it negatively impacts the dropping shin of the stance leg. And horizontal velocity is a huge function of horizontal shin drop on the stance leg. So as soon as I say step over the knee, I actually cause a reduction in angular velocity of that dropping shin. So I don't want to have the mini hurdles too high or they're going to start to force athletes to start to get into that type of scenario. So four inches or less, even two inches, even just paint sticks on the ground, that's fine. But doing that with like various or slightly random spacing, I really enjoy. So let's say instead of each hurdle being seven feet apart, maybe one's five, one's seven, one's seven and a half, one's six. And yeah, with a run-in, it's you could kind of run over a few hurdles before you truly have to stick to the scheme of what these are at. But I really enjoy using just a little bit of variability there. I was at uh, Rafe Kelly's Return to the Source retreat a few weeks ago, and we did a lot of uh, work in streams, jumping over rocks and doing, you consider it like almost triple jumping on rocks, like bounding from rock to rock to a log and doing so at kind of the edge of my ability. Like I couldn't go much further. So there was some, it wasn't just like, you know, two feet to two feet. Like these were pretty far apart and really were pretty demanding. And after doing a whole week of that stuff, I found that I came back to the gym. I hadn't really, I hadn't lifted in a week, of course. And my standing vertical jump was up uh, ever since I at least started testing it on the mat I'm using. Uh, I set a personal record with a with a cold, no warm-up standing vertical jump. I just felt so invigorated from that type of work, that slightly random in nature type work. And I think that if we can create that just a little bit occasionally in a flying 10, I think it's very novel and interesting to the athlete. And I think so oftentimes it's just like, well, I got a PR, I got a PR. <laughs> and And if you're playing a sport, and you occasionally bust out the flying 10, I think it's a different story. If I'm a track athlete and I'm doing this stuff all the time, I think some novelty is definitely needed. So using like low hurdles with some slightly random spacing 
uh, either as a standalone workout or as the warm up, and then get rid of the hurdles and then run a, a fly 10 and see what happens. I really like that type of stuff. Within the realm of mini hurdles as well, uh, you could do pliosoidal work, which is a Chris Corfist and Dan Victor term. And that was where I saw them do this at a, a TFC clinic where they would do the mini hurdle work, but then put like a piece of track or a few pieces of track down and they would have to, it would just be like a very slight elevation for a few steps. In fact, with the various spacing too, I'm thinking that Chris, uh, Chris, it's like, well, where do you go from overspeed? Chris uh, would put down the pieces of track and overspeed so that athletes would be sprinting and then they would have to hit the random pieces of track as well. So it's like putting that on. So yeah, if you say, ask the question, where do you go? You could always put in that variability and overspeed too. But Beyond that, I'm really not sure where you'd go, but that's a really creative usage there. So you could do that with or without an overspeed type setup. In early training, so think off-season or not as relevant, not as all relevant, but not we're not as close to where we need to be our true best. We're not peaking or tapering or anything like that or trying to get into more intensive modes. I really like doing speed gate golf. So instead of saying, hey, this and, and that this one, by the way, too, if you kind of know that the team is a little down that there's a good chance that they will not run their fastest or there won't be many, if any, uh, personal bests, which is mentally deflating. This is a really good option there. And I just like it in general. Sometimes athletes who try too hard are really well served by this, but Speedgate Golf, which Sam Portland came came on the podcast and talked about, which is where instead of saying, hey, I want you to run your fastest, maybe you run a fly 10 and say, hey, I want you to run a 1.15 and whoever's the closest to that wins. Uh, that just basically, it makes it a game and games. Uh, if you just listen to the podcast I did with Jake Tura are so key. Games are huge and making speed into a game. Again, you can, it's not always going to be a game. At some point you have to run fast and test yourself and try to get that personal best. But I am a big believer in the power of games. And so selectively using speed gate golf, I think is really helpful, especially in more of the quote unquote off season type times, or if athletes are just a little down, they're a little beat, make a game out of it. Maybe you can even uh, get some gear on. Like I mentioned, um, another point here was using like Lila sleeves or a different directional pull like Chris Corfus has talked about with uh, the Exergenie. Uh, Lila sleeves are like the little micro weights. You can put them on your calves or your arms and just making things a little bit different when it comes to that fly 10. Uh, you could you do one arm running as well. So doing a one arm fly 10, lots of ways you could do it. And I just really... I would rather kind of keep it simple in terms of the distance for most of the year, like a fly 10 or a fly 20. But where I would differ is how are we doing that versus just it's always max <laughs> and we're just going to do more volume just because I think that it's it's really hard mentally and physically to keep up with that for a long period of time. Like we're going to go maximum, we're going to record it and then we're going to do more or we're going to make it longer, things like that. I I tend to look at the year more from a Yes, there will be a change in volumes, but a lot of it is how are we doing it? What's the emphasis and how are we going to create and overload the coordination of the nervous system to create an adaptation? All right, another run. Well, this is a running question. So we are now officially transitioning off of sprinting here a little bit and getting into more running, which is also a fun topic here. Uh, Running being like distance running. So SAF73 asks, Thoughts on setting up a weight room jumping sprinting program for high school cross-country runners training age one to three years. I am a supplement to their cross-country training and not the coach. And then in the off-season, runners are with me weekly, three times weight room, one time track, following triphasic model, spring ankle, barefoot uh, training, 
track is bounding wickets, fly 10s, 20s, 30s, occasional backwards running, everything else low dose. So just for working with runners, distance runners, and I think this is a great, I like just running because whether you are a track coach, whether you are a team sport coach, whether you work in personal training with general population, running is a really important thing, not even sprinting, but just how well can I run? How efficient can I run? And I work with, um, ever since I got into the private sector about a year ago, distance runners have actually been a big part of the population I have been working with, both in person and even online. So it's, it's a really, this question hits home for me and I'm happy and excited to answer it. So the first question to ask in my mind when I work with a distance runner and an endurance runner is what can I get with just putting uh, long extreme iso holds in the program? So if we only, all we did to supplement running was an extreme iso lunge, an extreme iso like standing straight leg raise hold. So you're standing on one leg and extending the other leg out in front of you, maybe an iso push up. Um, not that that's critical for running, but just to do some upper body. And then maybe just let's just say playing games. So let's say all I did was some long ISO holds and just played some games just for robustness, like some fun games like soccer or basketball or volleyball or whatever. What else would I have to do really that I couldn't get from those? And I say this from the perspective that like if you looked at the Olympic, um, <laughs> look at the Olympics and look at the runners in the Olympics and you looked at the weightlifting practices of those athletes. I mean, yeah, I'm sure quite a few of them definitely lift, and especially once you get to like the 800, sure. But the longer runners, the 1500 meter runners, the 5K runners, 10K, how many of them lift weights with like a, at, at a high level? And the answer is probably not a whole lot. It's really important to start with, uh, in my mind, just the, the basics that will help them to be more efficient, more robust, and to stick with really what they, more efficient is what they need. Uh, there is the idea too, and I, I do agree with this, is that either strength training, heavier strength training, or plyometric work can yield, uh, quote unquote, stiffer springs in an endurance runner. And I would agree with that. And with that being said, I would definitely stay on the side of probably more plyometric type stuff for most of those runners. But at the same time, I think there's a lot of really, really elite level athletes who don't necessarily do a whole lot of that. I will stick with the plyometric side of that though. So for increasing stiffness. So I'll start with a base of extreme holds. So can you do an extreme iso lunge? Can you hold an extreme or uh, isometric state uh, straight standing leg raise for at least three minutes? You should be able to do those things. I like playing games because if you're runners, playing games is just it's just a good thing to be diverse. So just basic games. And then, yeah, being able to do, uh, especially the further down you go towards the mid distances, basic plyometrics. So yeah, basic bounding, basic rudiment style hops and, and jumps, some basic drops I've been using as well. So just dropping, can you drop off an 18 inch box, a 24 inch box, is your landing look halfway decent, <laughs> those kind of things. And then when, um, when we do get into the lifting, I do, I like the idea of the triphasic. I actually prefer, and this would fit with the flying tens too, is I think that people who um, think of it as a stress, how long does it take to recover from a stressor? A sprinter who runs, let's say, three or four fly tens might recover from that workout um, 90% of the way in two or three days. A distance runner or a 10K runner who runs a couple flying tens as fast as possible, it might take their nervous system, not their, like their, their energy systems, but their nervous system a lot longer because they're not really built to do that. <laughs> and granted, too, I mean, I don't know how close to their true maximal ability they might be able to even get. But a lot of times, 
in my mind, a distance runners can oftentimes be better served just with hill sprints and things of that nature and a little bit longer hill sprints versus necessarily doing flying tens. I don't necessarily think it's bad, but I think the fly sprints are probably better for more of the mid distance uh, end of the spectrum who do have more of those fast switch fibers. One thing that with the lifting too, uh, I will say as well, I, I err on the side of like one set of 10 to 20 reps for a lot of things, just because I would rather err on the side of less, less compression and less potential recovery time from the nervous system by trying to go heavier with that group. I, I just think it's very easy to want to put our stamp of strength and power on all the athletes that we work with, which I, you know, I definitely like athletes too. I mean, I, I've worked with quite a few distance runners, as I said, and we'll do stuff this was more the mid-distance group, but we were doing max hurdle jumps and running 20-meter sprints for time and things like that. Occasionally, not always, but we enjoy doing that. I enjoy seeing them get better. But it's where it's for the longer distances. I just be aware of how much and how often I'm doing that kind of thing. And so, yeah, with the 1 by 20, you're just going to compress the athlete a little bit less. You're not going to be quite taxing that the nervous system quite as much. And so for that, that's valuable. The last thing that I think is good for distance is just looking at with sprint speed is the ability to rotate. And so for that, I actually really like the idea of uh, having them do Captain Morgan type hops where they actually have like a rotational component of the glutes. And as well, if you've heard, um, I know David Weck's been on this show, uh, the Weck 45 deadlift, uh, where it's there's a rotational component to that. I think that's good for distance runners as well. I, I noticed that the distance runners who tend to not just be quite as fast, if I have them do various hops or like a Captain Morgan hop, they're just not very rotational. Like they're just very linear in all their, their, their movements. And the glutes are a rotational muscle. And so I like, I would almost sometimes, in fact, if you had to ask me, would I, if I could pick between a fly 10 and doing some of that rotational hopping work, trying to get them to really leverage the glutes, I would definitely pick the work where they're leveraging the glutes. Cause then they're going to use their glutes more on every single step versus the idea of, I guess, running like a fly 10 with not, not using your glutes well rotationally, kind of compensating, uh, more moving in more of a distance runner kind of compensated manner if they're not really leveraging their full rotational potential with that. So those are some thoughts on some things I find value in. Again, I, I think that there's a lot of ways to do it, but I think within the bandwidth two of distance runners, you're going to have more fast twitch 800 runners and then more true distance 10K runners, and you're going to get a lot of different response within that spectrum. Okay, a few more questions here, and the sprint questions definitely have been taking me a little bit longer than I thought, so I might have to cut some of these other ones just a little bit short, but hopefully I can kind of get to uh, most of my thoughts on them. So Sam Likes Biomechanics asked me, how do you balance your stance uh, beliefs when training philosophy and paradigm, and paradigm swings like a pendulum? The middle ground isn't always the best, despite everyone saying it is. So what helps you make a decision on where you stand currently? So I, I like this question because it's not, and maybe this will be a good place to finish, if it, depending on how long it takes me, but uh, how do I make a decision in a training method? So you see a, a training video on Instagram or someone blogging about a particular type of training. How do I run that through my processing system and decide what to do with it? So I'll take this question to... Uh, First, I'll say I think it's easy to, for me to say something that I don't actually do. So I don't want to do that because at the end of the day, our brains are on automatic in many cases. We just, we, we see something, it hits our biases and we make a decision on it and we think we're right. <laughs> and so I'll just maybe take this more from a, how, how do I learn? I, I could maybe say that. 
And I think that the only way to know in many cases, truly in a coaching perspective, is through experience or either experience yourself or direct experience coaching others. That as opposed to just hearing people talk about it or getting on Twitter and hearing people message back and forth about this thing. There's that kind of knowledge where you just learn and hear people talking about something or you're in a classroom and you're learning something and people are saying, here's a thing and this is why you should know it versus actually going through and doing it yourself or coaching someone directly and directly, you know, being a conduit or asking them, you know, how did that feel? How, what do you think happened there? And really working closely in proximity with others. And so I, I think that one of the big things that has been uh, a big catalyst in how I decide to do uh, different for sprint, sprint mechanics is probably a big thing. I think compared to some belief systems in sprinting, I'm probably a little bit different. The reason I decided to go the way I did, a lot of that first came out of what was happening with me, my own experience using these methods personally. And then I am always, <laughs> there is always a slightly skeptical side uh, that I have. And so I'll naturally then want to test that thing that worked on me on other people. Did it work with other athletes? And that's it. Oftentimes, a lot of the things I hear tend to start or in learning, I want to try myself and then it'll work. Did it work with myself? Did it work with other athletes? The athletes it worked on, what kinds of athletes were they? What was their body type? Were they more elastic? Were they more muscle driven? What's their mindset for things? And so I think that, again, it's important to start there and then work your way out in many cases. And then also, uh, maybe from the other side of things, I think that experience at some point, you could say all, all coaches would say, well, it's important to develop a philosophy. And I think it's easy to just, <laughs> I don't know, I, if I was in a class and, and it was a coaching philosophy class, I think it would be easy for me just to take someone else's philosophy and say, here's my project and this is my philosophy. And I, I'll, all that to say, it's I'm 37, almost 38, and I think I've figured out a good chunk of my coaching philosophy. And that is that the idea that athletic development is a reflection of the systems of nature. And it's probably took me at least 10 years to, of coaching to get to that point where that really started to resonate with me. And so I have, when I'm looking at different coaching systems and ideas, I'm weighing it against personal experience of myself and then coaching others, the experience that I've had from reading, and then my own philosophy of what training is. So that philosophy lends itself to some of my coaching ideas and things that I'll, the areas or the directions I tend to go, which would be cueing athletes less, giving them more chances to self-organize and figure problems out on their own before I would instruct them, to give them frameworks and, and drills and, and just things to that where I'm not coaching them directly, but drills that help them coach themselves and learn themselves. I tend to focus on uh, the timing and harmony of our bodies and the relationship uh, of our bodies with the mediums we're working with. So the relationship between our foot and the ground, for example, between the body and gravity and I'll, I'll put a priority on that before I would instruct an athlete into positions. I do believe in biomechanical models or at least having a bandwidth of you should be at least within this bandwidth, but I won't tell an athlete, well, you need to be in this position and your arm and hand, you need to be in this position. <laughs> I'll, I'll always give an athlete freedom in, in having a harmony to their movement where they can self-organize it as it fits their body. I'm fluid in my training arrangements and uh, both on the day and long term, I do have a plan, but I also have a lot of room for intuition, a lot of room for menu systems, 
a lot of room for some fun and games. And then we have the main themes of the day. But a lot of the other parts of the day, there is some fluidity and there is the chance to for the athlete to put their input into it. And I do feel like that's a very, it's a harmonious system. I also think that so often in the weight room, the weight room can be fancier than it needs to be. We're trying to make weights something that resembles a picture of positions in athletics. And again, it's all about timing and fluidity and adapting to our environment in a dynamic way. And so I will tend to be simpler in the weight room on account of that and just really use sensory cues, uh, replace that almost more with sensory cues in the weight room chances for athletes to feel more during various lifts. Not when we're really getting after it and going heavy, but a lot of the lifts we do, giving them a chance, like using uh, wedges and things like that to feel their feet dynamically in different ways. And it's a very feeling-based, relational with the ground-based and gravity-based system. And uh, so that would reflect my, my philo- overall philosophy and how that goes about. So that did take a little bit of time. I'll just get one more question and then we'll be done for this Q&A. The last question here is Brandon and he has this one. In regards to the Soviet research on muscle relaxation times being the differentiating factor between their elite and non-elite athletes, what are some methods to train relaxation times? This is a great one. I just think that this, uh, and Graham Morris talked about this on the recent podcast he was on, particularly him using a lot of oscillating training, some of Cal Dietz's oscillating methods in with his uh, MMA fighters that he works with and just how much uh, they improve their kicking power. So for me, uh, I'll just start with this is, well, one, being uh, able to relax a muscle faster is also due to the type of muscle fiber that it is. So if a fast twitch muscle can relax faster innately than a slow twitch muscle, I do believe there's some research and ideas that you could get a slow twitch to behave more like a fast twitch electrically. And I think that's awesome. But I'll say, I mean, faster sprinters are generally or are more fast twitch than slower sprinters. And I think that just comes with the territory with that type of muscle that they have. Everything else that I'm going to say is kind of philosophical because I cannot prove it. Uh, I cannot give you, um, I can't say like I measured how fast this athlete relaxed their muscle before and after. These are just things that I think can have a big impact on that. And so one is oscillatory training and oscillatory isometrics. So if you listen to Graham Morris and the, the I think Cal Dietz calls them the trimetrics. Those are the band-based fast hip uh, oscillatory movements. But there's a lot of other ones that I think are good. Um, I prefer like the stuff that's in a split squat position. So an oscillatory isometric lunge or split squat. So think a rear foot elevated split squat where I am getting to a front leg parallel position. I'm contracting my muscles in that front leg as hard as I can, then relaxing them as completely as I can and bouncing out of the bottom, coming back up to the top. So that kind of movement. There's also movements where athletes are going through like the the bottom range of a movement and going as fast as they can and then exploding out of it. So maybe I'm in that split squat position. I'm doing five pulses up and down, like one inch up and down at the bottom as fast as I can, and then exploding out. I think that that kind of work definitely forces relaxation time in the muscles. You could say the same thing to even for stuff on the level of the foot and ankle, just doing heel taps as fast as possible in a flex leg position, being able to contract and relax really quickly, I think is a a hallmark of a good explosive athlete. Rhythmic training and hops is another one. And this is one where, where the oscillatory isometrics are more of the maximal paradigm. I'm a big fan of rhythmic paradigms. Uh, to me, I mean, you could think if you're going to do a true maximal paradigm, just go sprint. You know, you have to turn stuff on and off really, really fast just to sprint. So, you know, there you go. There's something that, that you're going to get something substantial there with that kind of thing. 
But I also really like the idea of doing things to a rhythm where there's a beat or music outside of you that you have to keep with. And I think in the art of kind of keeping with music, so even just think of like there's music and I'm just doing low squat kind of one inch or two inch up and down hops to the music. That reaction to the external stimulus, I believe, has to allow the muscles to relax on at least a pretty substantial level. And there's a level of fluidity with that. I mean, if you look at dancing, there's fluidity. And if you really had to get nitpicky, would you say that fluidity is kind of the same thing as being able to relax a muscle. I mean, it's not far off. (laughs) And I I would say that athletes who can at least do things to music, and I see this, athletes who try to do things to beats or music and just have no ability to, tend to have really poor rhythm in what they're doing in their sport. And I've even seen this manifest in even things like, I feel like, I, I have small sample sizes, but even to the point where athletes who have like a really good single leg RSI jumps or reactive strength index where they jump really high really quickly, they have this ability to like rhythmically like twitch their heel faster. And then that also extrapolating out to when we do uh, movements to rhythm, they just seem to be better at the movements to rhythm. There's this just like uh, rhythmic control of the body on both a slow and even like a fast twitch level. I'm sure there's all iterations of that, but I like doing just basic stuff to a rhythm, to a beat, I think that allows an athlete to have a different kind of relaxation. Tempo training and tempo sprinting is another one. Now, this one is anecdotal in the sense, or not anecdotal, it's philosophical in the sense that Charlie Francis had mentioned that tempo training, or think running 7 by 200 on two minutes rest at a submaximal pace, helps decrease electrical resistance in the muscle, which theoretically allow, would allow, you would think, allow the muscle to relax faster. I personally... Tempo training helps me. Like I, I, I do well as an athlete with tempo in my training program. And that's not going to be all athletes, but I do think some athletes, maybe you could say if you're a rigid athlete and you need to relax more, and that is true, what Charlie said, then maybe tempo training is what you need. And you could think of tempo training as rhythmic as well. There's a rhythmicness to it, just like doing some rhythmic stuff and to common weight room movements. Finally, and this would be much more, again, we'll, we kind of went into more of the rhythmic, the middle. If we started with oscillatory, like maximal speed stuff, I'm doing maximal speed reversals. And then we have the rhythmic, which is kind of more the middle, the fluidity. I'll go back to a maximal. And that's um, doing a single leg line hop uh, for time, like over a small rope. So let's say you have a battle rope. It's an inch and a half thick. Put an athlete on one leg or two, but I think one leg is really good. How many times can you hop over that rope in 10 seconds, 20 seconds, 30 seconds? 30 seconds is a good one. I saw that 30-second single-leg rope line hop in Chris Corfist and Dan Fichter's um, old workouts where they would do a like a a max fly 10, some straight-leg balance, some uh, hurdle hops, and then jump over a single-leg hops over a line for 30 seconds. That was like their higher, higher work time bracket, and then they'd repeat that. And so I really like contrast contrasting high rep single leg line hops with short burst stuff. So like a fly 10, I think there's a lot of value then, or just throwing it on the end of a French contrast set, tons of value in that. I think that really can help. You can't go over that line fast unless you're relaxing muscles. It's impossible. You, you can't have muscles on the whole time to be jumping over a rope on one leg at say uh, three or four times a second. It's just not going to happen. So those are some things that I think are helpful with uh, facilitating faster reaction times. I do wish I had some sort of anecdote to say, or relaxation time, sorry, 
I wish I had some sort of anecdote to say, yes, definitively, I measured it, and this is how you do it. <laughs> I mean, I guess the ultimate proof of it, right, is if you are able to sprint faster. Ideally, you're probably, hopefully, able to relax muscles a little bit faster. So I would be interested in any of you guys' thoughts on that one as well. But for me, those are things that I do find if we're talking about just reaction and fluidity and the ability to turn muscles on and off, I think those are really helpful. And they do manifest in faster sprint times in my experience. The oscillatory isometric split squats, the single leg line hops, those do manifest in faster sprint times. So if you haven't used them, go try them out yourself. Let me know what you think. All right, so we had a few more questions, but I'm, I'm going to leave it there for this Q&A. Thanks again for everyone who contributed. I appreciate it. And we'll see you all next week with another show.